Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. Thank you so much for listening. There are many different factors that can affect how and where people travel. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that body size can can be a a major factor in in how people approach travel. Uh, To discuss that, Carla Sosenko is on the line. Last week, she had a terrific article in the New York Times. It's called New Tours Mean More FOMO for Plus-Size Travelers. Five companies dedicated to size-inclusive travel aim to bring community and reassurance to people in bigger bodies. Hey, Carla, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I learned so much from this article. It was such a terrific article. Oh, thanks. I want to start first with what terms are acceptable to describe people in bigger bodies? Because I I don't want to accidentally offend anybody listening or you or, or, you know, anybody. I think it's a great question. I think it's wonderful that you asked. And also I should say it's really individual. It's really different from person to person, but I would say that generally speaking, in the fat liberation and fat positive community, the term obese is not one that is embraced. And the reason huh. for that is because obesity, and I'm making air quotes with my fingers that you can't see, is, <laughs> right. is a medical condition, number one, right? It's it's the way it's the way, you know, I was able, for example, to get my COVID shot before other people huh. are not technically quote unquote obese, right? Because right. <laughs> I just side note, I figured, hey, I, I'm gonna use this to my advantage for once in my life. I not. Basically, yeah. <laughs> right? It's 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 a medical term and it's based the other problematic part of it is that it's based on in part the BMI, the body mass index, which right. is not only considered to be outdated by many in the community, but also to have racist origin. There are lots and lots of problems with it. And so the, mm. the really short answer is that obese, though you will see it everywhere, and it is considered a medically acceptable term for those people that are fat positive, it's not one that typically we use because we don't see our fatness as a medical disease or a problem. I would say that similarly overweight, and this is one that I think I kind of just decided sort of personally, although I'm sure I'm not the only one that thinks this, overweight to me inherently in, in when you think about like what that word means, it suggests that there is an ideal weight to be. Hmm. And if you sure. are quote unquote overweight, you are in some way defective. And so what, you know, it's not to say that the word fat can't be used as an insult. You know, you put any word in, in the mouth of somebody who intends to do harm and sure. they can do it. But it's one of those terms that people in bigger bodies have really embraced and the fat liberation movement isn't new and it's it's something that uh, people in bigger bodies have really taken back. So throughout my article, I use the word fat. I, that is something I do not use the word obese or overweight except right. to define them. Right. Okay. So you also use plus size. Yes. You also use larger. Yes. So what was mind blowing to me about this article 
is that I hadn't realized that people who are larger had so many concerns about travel. You make the point in your article that one third of the people on the planet uh, fall into the category of fat or larger or plus size, and yet they're not catered to in many cultures and are put down. Uh, So let's talk first about some of the concerns that larger travelers have, and then we'll talk about how these new companies are are rising up to hopefully allay those concerns. Yeah. So the stat that you cited came from NAFO, which is the National Association to um, Advance Fat Acceptance. And that Mm. says that one third of the world's population is fat. And fat is a very kind of nebulous term. Basically, Tigris Osborne, who's the chair of NAFA, defines it as exceeding both medical standards, but also societal standards. And hmm. when Tigris and I spoke, she defined it in a way that I thought was really helpful, which was kind of like, you know it when you see it, right? At least huh. for some people. It's it's sure because we want to stay away from using the BMI and other outdated metrics. It's something that cannot necessarily be quantified, but but that's that's the general kind of rule of thumb. So yes, one third of the world's population is fat. And that to me was not a surprising statistic. And it's also not surprising that if you are not part of that community, that you wouldn't necessarily know that or think right. about the concerns of people in bigger bodies when they travel, because it's just not something you know, it's it's something that a lot of us have been learning more and more about over the past few years. It's a form of privilege, you know, often unconscious privilege because it doesn't affect you. So you wouldn't have to think about it. So right. the worries of fat people when they travel, they are all over the place. They run the gamut from microcosmic to macrocosmic, from hmm. figurative and literal Right. So I think the most common example that comes up for people, it has come up for me, it it came up for a lot of the people I interviewed is the airline seat and the seatbelt. The seatbelts, yeah. you know, even for people who are not in bigger bodies, I'm I'm sure you've noticed the seatbelt length on airplanes can really, really differ. Sure. And if you cannot put your seatbelt on, then you're supposed to ask for a seat extender now, or a seatbelt extender, I should say. That can be incredibly embarrassing. Mm. It can be humiliating for some of us. I mean, listen, some people are very evolved and, and incredibly proud. And that's my sure. aspiration point to get to the point where <laughs> I think, hey, I need a seatbelt extender. So I'm going to ask for one and that's my right. And if you have a problem with that, that's too bad for you. You work on that. But for a lot of us, because we've spent a lot of our lives being shamed for our body size, it that is very triggering. There's really no reason that seatbelts can't just be bigger, especially when so much of the population would yeah. benefit. So yeah, absolutely. Right? So it's so that's, that's one. That's one. Another that I'd never thought of was what happens if my luggage gets lost? Oh my God. And I... And I can't find a shop that has plus size clothing in it, which in, you know, in certain countries and certain places, you're not going to find it. 
I will admit that that is one I had never thought of either. So even within the fat positive community, there are still, there's still a spectrum, right? So I am, I would say more on the small fat, mid fat side of things. So I had never that even though I am bigger than uh, somebody who's a size eight, I have a form of privilege in that I never had to think about that either. And it wasn't until I talked to Trevor Kizong from NAFA, he's on the board of NAFA. And he Uh said that it is just standard for him that he packs two suitcases because he has had the experience of an airline losing a bag. And again, this is something that you would not think about unless you had to getting to a destination. And guess what? There's not one place where you can find something that fits you. And of course, you get to the destination, you, you might, there might be limitations on horseback riding, on zip lining, on rides on uh, at amusement parks. Yep. And so you found five, I think they're brand new companies, right? Who are doing tours yeah. for people in larger bodies, right? Let let's talk yeah. about a couple a couple of those companies. Yeah. So one of them, I love this, came out of a famous blog uh, called Swipe Fat. Yes. Uh, talk about the blog and then and then talk about their tour. I thought this was fascinating. Yeah. So Swipe Fat is one of the newer companies. Most of them are pretty new. I think. The oldest, the oldest one kind of started around 2016. So, so still all relatively new. Swipe Fat was started by two young women, Nikki Nunez and Alex Stewart. They met through mutual friends during the pandemic and they started a podcast called Swipe Fat. And the whole ethos behind Swipe Fat is talking about what particular anxieties and worries people, women specifically, and bigger bodies have when they're dating in the era of apps. And for me, Mm. even though I'm a 46-year-old woman and I've kind of been there, done that with the apps, this absolutely rang true for me. And I was so jealous that I hadn't had this when I was younger because there are so many particular worries that come up. I mean, dating on the apps is kind of horrific for everybody. And it yeah. Brings up I've your- been married for 30 years. <laughs> and so are going on actually 28, but going, I can't even imagine it. I, I have mean, friends who do it and it seems like such a wild west. If you have any sort of insecurity at all, it, it's going to be exacerbated. But I think what happens if you are a person who is fat, it brings up lots of other worries such as do I, you know, this is something that Alex Stewart brought up as an example that I have 100% experienced is, do I look fat enough in this picture? Well, <laughs> are, are they, ex, are they expecting someone thinner? And at the same point, you know, if you still haven't worked through all your internalized fat phobia, maybe that's an inner struggle too. Maybe you want to look thinner, but that's very complicated. So that's, that's where their relationship started. Right. They are based in Chicago and they started hosting meetups and then they kind of just had this idea like what if we started doing meetups in other places and they just started to have trips. They had their inaugural trip to Athens and Mykonos in October 2022 and they just got back from Italy. They did an Italy trip in June. They're going to Spain in October 
And, and we then, should say that, yeah. that these trips have nothing to do with dating. They're just no, for, no. Yes. for women or people who identify as women yes. uh, to just go and travel the world together. That's correct. That's a really good point. That was one of the first questions I asked them because they said, do people have to date when they get in? No, 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 no. It's just, it's just an offshoot of, of their podcast. So it has the same name, but, but yeah, it's just, all it is, is a group of people who are, you know, the way that I described them in my article is like-minded and like-bodied. And um, there's a real security in doing that. And and they, you know, said that the impact was just immediately palpable. And people on their trip told them how transformative it was. And I thought that the ultimate proof was that they've had return travelers. They had return travelers from their uh, Greece trip to Italy, and they have some more that are coming back from Spain, which I think is the right. ultimate confirmation that what they're doing is working. Yeah, absolutely. And the other companies include uh, Stellavision, Fat Girls Traveling. And I thought it was so interesting. You interviewed one of the leaders of these companies and said, look, I can't stop people from uh, glancing over and giving us the stink eye, but I can try and get the people in the group not to notice it, or I can stand in the way, or I can talk to that person in the local language so that they understand better that, that, you know, they shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Um, so, so these trips aren't diet trips. Oh, God, they no. aren't, they aren't therapy trips. What makes these trips different besides the fact that everybody on them is, is bigger, which obviously is a big difference too. And, and, and has ramifications. Yeah, I th- I think there are a multitude of ways in which that they're different. And I'm really glad you brought up dieting because it's something that I didn't talk about in the article and I kind of wish that I had. I hmm. would say anybody, this is a generalization, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most people who are out there looking for fat positive trips are likely people, and I can speak from my own experience here, who have been through diet culture, who've been through the ringer of diet culture, have Mm -hmm. either come out the other side of it or are starting to, or are starting to think about coming out the other side of it, by which I mean, rejecting it and no longer dieting. A lot of us, a very, very common thread for many of us in bigger bodies is that we were forced to diet when we were very young. And for many of us, that inevitably led to disordered eating or full-blown eating Mm -hmm. disorders. And uh, we are now in a space of being anti-diet culture. And so on the contrary to having any diet aspect, one of the things that a lot of the travelers I interviewed spoke about in terms of being a main draw for them was a freedom from talking about food. You know, I, in a negative way. I should say that there is no pressure, that there is no judgment to eat what you want and how much you want. You know, think of any vacation you've been on, something that I think a lot of us do, especially as women, it is sort of a default to talk about what we're eating constantly in a way that involves guilt and involves shame. You know, Mm. like, oh God, we're eating, we're eating such a big dinner tonight. Maybe I'll skip lunch or, oh my God, I can't believe how much I ate at the buffet this morning on vacation. And one of the travelers I spoke to said, 
the biggest thing that I wanted to do. She said, I was going to Italy. I knew I wanted to eat. I did not want to be (laughs) with a group of people who were going to judge me for that. And so that's a huge draw for people, I think, is that freedom from diet culture, being anti-diet and being around like-minded people. That Mm -hmm. is a big one. I'm hesitant to equate being in a bigger body with being slower or needing certain accommodations. Some people don't, some people do. The great thing about these tours is that if you do, there is no shame in asking. In fact, I'm going on a Stella Vision travel trip in July and Ah. Zoe Shapiro, who is the founder of Stella Vision Travel, sent out a survey. I knew that she would be doing this. And in it, she asks, what are any particular worries or questions or anxieties that you have that I can try to tackle beforehand? And that Mm -hmm. was huge. And I said to her, listen, I said, I don't move as fast as I used to. I have bad feet. I'm really tired all the time in a way that that I didn't used to be, which I think has nothing to do with my size and has a lot to do with age and the uh, trauma of the sure. pandemic and and the fact that I really became a house cat, you know, in the middle of <laughs> quarantine. And she wrote back the most wonderful, empathic, helpful message. She said, for one thing, I want you to know that I am also very slow. I And, and number two, uh, these trips, this trip, especially all of television travel, television travel does some trips that are specifically marked as size inclusive and some that aren't, but they all have that same ethos, even the ones that aren't size inclusive. And the biggest thing is that you do what you want and that is the end of it. And Zoe went out of her way to say to me, I am happy to mark up an itinerary and let you know what the kind of physical expectation, that's the wrong word. I shouldn't even say expectation. What, What the physical demands of a particular activity will be and what you can do if you don't feel like coming. And I thought this is the most amazing thing because if I don't feel like schlepping around for two hours in the sun in Rome, and I may feel like it, but if I don't, and I'd rather stay by the hotel pool all day, I can do that. And I don't have to feel guilt and I don't have to feel judged. I don't have to feel anything. And so that is a huge part of it. Yeah. And and you make the point in the article that certain activities that are seen as off limits to bigger people, such as zip lining, don't have to be. And so sometimes those activities are are offered. Like uh, you make the point that lumber is often yeah. moved by zip lines. So clearly zip lines can can accommodate a lot of weight, and yet many zipline operators don't do that. And you said some of the uh, tour companies might have larger, ch- might go to restaurants where they know that the seating is large and very comfortable. Yes. And, you know, in that way, they, they look at the comfort first for people who are in bigger bodies. I thought right. that was really right. wonderful. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a delight speaking with you. Many travelers today rely on user reviews. These are supposedly reviews written by average travelers just like themselves, and this has become a standard way to plan travel. But there are problems with it, 
And there are problems with believing reviews you see online in general. To help me discuss that topic, I have Kay Dean on the line. She is the founder of Fake Review Watch. Hey, Kay, so nice to speak with you. Delighted to be with you today. So I know this website came from a personal experience you had. Can Let's start with that. Why did you decide to start this website? Yes, I have a website and I also have a YouTube channel called Fake Review Watch, where I post case studies of my findings. And I started investigating review fraud about five years ago after a personal experience with fake reviews for a medical provider here in the California uh, uh, Bay Area. And so my personal experience spurred my larger investigation, and I've just uncovered that the scope of the problem is just massive. Give us some details about what happened to you when you used a review on the medical side, and we can then get to the travel applications of this. But let, let's start with your personal experience. Sure. Uh, about five years ago, uh, I used online reviews, primarily Yelp and Google, to find a medical provider here in the Bay Area. And I ended up having a bad experience, which just left me puzzled about those reviews that I had relied on. And so I'm a former federal investigator. And so I put on my investigator hat and started doing some digging. And I ultimately uncovered that the practice had someone on Facebook and Facebook review exchange groups bartering and trading reviews with other businesses. And so this just uncovered, just, uh, just exposed this whole world of fakery just being facilitated on Facebook alone. And so this is what spurred my larger investigation. And, and, and the scope of the problem is massive, I think much worse than most people are even aware of. Well, I got to say, Yelp and Facebook and all of these other sites all claim that they have investigators on their staffs making sure that fake reviews don't, don't make it out, out of the gate. But you're not finding that, right? Oh, yeah, they claim that. But what I'm finding and my research has shown, have shown it over and over in my on my YouTube channel, is that they are not self-policing as they should be and clearly not investing in the resources necessary to really adequately police their platforms. And really, when you think about it, it's not in their business interest to do so. Uh, they're hmm. paid by the businesses who advertise with them. So you said you found an exchange for reviews. That's absolutely fascinating. I know in the travel industry, I've heard of businesses uh, that simply reach out to the major hotel chains, uh, major restaurant chains, airlines, etc., and simply write fake reviews for a fee. Have you found that as well? Oh, absolutely. There are a variety of ways that uh, businesses can obtain fake reviews, and that's one way. Just buy them get on Facebook and join a Facebook group, for example, and it's very inexpensive. And another aspect of the uh, review fraud that I've uncovered um, occurring is this review bartering and trading. You give my business a a positive Google and Yelp review, and I give your business a positive Google and Yelp review, for example. And so that's one aspect. And then it's no cost to the business because they're not paying anyone to do that. And then I've uncovered these elaborate networks of um, faking going on. And these are organized primarily by marketers or SEO companies. And what they do is they just distribute reviews, fake reviews among their business clients. Huh. And so when you say they distribute business reviews, what does that mean? 
Yeah, good good question. So for example, um, like I said, they some marketers create fake profiles to distribute reviews among their business clients. I uncovered a network of over 1,200 American businesses receiving fake Google reviews. And what I found was that a Miami plastic surgeon who was part of this network uh, was getting numerous fake reviews. And how I determined that was by examining the patterns of the Google reviews. For example, huh. it wasn't believable that uh, out of the 40 patients for this particular surgeon, 14 of these people use the same pediatric group up in Orlando, or 10 use the same pizza place in Toronto, or 10 use the same fencing company. And so by uh, analyzing the review patterns, you can see these suspicious patterns that Google, for example, or Yelp should clearly see the, the patterns are so obviously fraudulent. And um, in my research, I just show over and over again that they are failing miserably at sussing wow. fake reviews. You know, I, I on uh, Amazon, there is a rival guidebook that has 660 reviews up on it. And I thought, how does any book, uh, especially a guidebook, guidebooks, yeah, maybe we'll get 200 for a book, mm-hmm. but 600, and I noticed they all went up the same day. Well, that's a <laughs> 600. Good 60 people all posted them the same day. And I thought, well, why hasn't Amazon recognized this? Why is Amazon letting 660 reviews to come in in one day? And then the only ones that have come in since have been that this book is crap, that this book is not worth buying. Right. And I don't investigate Amazon reviews, but the same patterns you can see in terms of us identifying those suspicious red flags, for example, a bunch of reviews coming in at the same time. And the question is, Amazon's, for example, their algorithm should certainly pick that up. Right. Obviously, they're not, or they're very slow. And so hmm. all the while, millions of consumers get duped. The honest right. businesses are harmed and uh, business ethics are just eroding. So it's, it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem, especially, you know, as Americans, we have so little vacation time and the costs of travel are going up, up, up. And so- our vacations are precious, and yet a lot of people are using these reviews from who knows who knows who is making these reviews to plan their vacations. They're using TripAdvisor. They're using Yelp. Have you seen this problem in the travel sphere? Well, I've seen plenty of hotels, restaurants, tourist sites, you name it, are receiving fake reviews, and enough so that I'm to a point having researched this for five years now that my advice to consumers is actually stick to the tried and true method of getting your information from, from uh, referrals, real people, or guidebooks, uh, certainly not the review system as it exists today. It is just saturated with fake reviews, and the tech companies are just failing miserably to address it. And it's really harming the honest businesses who have to compete in this environment where essentially cheating is rewarded right now. Right. I always say, take reviews online with a grain of salt. There are some things that, say, a TripAdvisor review could do that we can't. So, for example, for a hotel, they might be able to tell people, you know, a a traveler who goes there and realizes, uh-oh, there's construction in front of this hotel for the next three months. That's not something we could cover in a guidebook. So I think there are some uses. Do you have advice 
for people who still want to use these online reviews, but want to make sure that they're not getting fed fake ones? How do you spot the fakes? You know, that's such a good question. And I can say that it's very, very difficult for the average average consumer to suss out fake reviews. Quite often, reviews that are fake have a lot of detail. It seems very legitimate. They can even provide photos because, and a lot of times the review, the, the business with faking provides the text of the reviews and even photos of food or whatever for the, the review broker to just post. And so it's very deceptive. Oh. And I think the public puts a lot of trust in these tech companies that their algorithms are looking out for the consumer and they're not. And But I think to your point, people surveys show today that majority of people are going to consult online reviews and making their decisions. It's so tempting. It's so tempting. Sure. It's just instant information. And and of course, my message is always over and over now. Uh, it's so saturated. Don't. I'd rather have no information than fake information. And so mm. ask real people. But yeah, okay, are there red flags? Because then you are always solutions. You want to think, well, what are some guides? And to your point, yeah, when you see a cluster of five-star reviews coming in at the same time, that's suspicious. Or yeah. batches of five-star reviews followed by a negative review. Quite often, businesses will uh, try to cover negative experiences with a batch of fake five-star reviews. Huh. Or uh, reviewers, for example, that only have one review. You know, you look at the profile and it's the only business, that's the only one. That's always a red flag. Or on Google, for example, uh, a locked profile. Google allows people to make their profiles private. And what the fakers or fraudsters do is, and Google allows them to do it, which is beyond me, they lock their profiles and essentially hide their fraudulent patterns. So you can't see that, oh, it's not believable when you look at like, well, it's suspicious. Or people like me, an investigator to examine, because this is another thing. I don't use automation in my research. I use just eyes on and spreadsheets. And the amount of fraud that I can single-handedly uncover on any given day is just totally shocking. It would give you just no confidence in these sites that they're doing what they say. So those are a couple of tricks that I would say, but I always tell the public to always remember where these review sites make their money. Most of them are getting paid by the businesses who advertise with them. So there is an inherent conflict of interest. Uh, Always keep that in mind when you're using reviews that, uh, they really don't have a lot of incentive to self-police because they profit whether the reviews are real or fake. And it's interesting, but they cannot be, when I say they, the review platforms can't be held liable for user-generated content such as fake reviews. So uh, they can't be held liable and huh. under, under current legislation, you know, that, and that needs to happen. We, they need to be held accountable for the fraud that they're foisting on the public. And it's a tremendous, I truly believe with the amount of fraud that I'm uncovering, that is distorting consumer behavior. And hmm. it's very disturbing to see. Yeah. Because really right now, Pauline, it's the wild west. Anything goes. There's no, there's really no, not an incentive not to fake because it really, there aren't really any repercussions for doing so. For example, sure, on sure. Google, you know, I can look at a, a Google page for, let's say a restaurant, hotel, and you wouldn't know, for example, that if, that Google may have removed 150 reviews the day before that because they were fake. They just disappear. Huh. They disappear on Google. The public and the, and the star ratings often just stay remain. So you would have no idea. Who wouldn't want to know Pauline and make right. the decision that that business may have just tried to deceive me with fake reviews? So on Google, they just disappear. Fake reviews hmm. just vanish. 
And I think that is very deceptive. They have a lot more information than they share about them. Yeah. Uh, and so it really distorts the marketplace and makes it very unfair for the honest, the honest businesses out there trying to compete in this environment. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for appearing on the Firmer Travel Show. Well, thank you for the opportunity. So a lot of visitors to the national parks have been doing what they shouldn't do. They've been tangling with the animals. To help us discuss this, we have one of our favorite guests back. She is Andrea Sachs. She's a travel reporter for the Washington Post, and she just wrote a terrific article called Why Can't Tourists Stop Messing with Wild Animals? Hey, Andrea, thank you so much for coming on to discuss what what really is an important topic. Hi, it's great to be back. I can't believe we're still talking about this, but there we go. Well, you say you can't believe we're still talking about this, but to my mind, it seems like in 2023, this has been happening more than usual, or am I uh, am I wrong? No, I, I feel like it's getting a lot more media attention. In 2016, there was another bison incident where a visitor had interfered with a baby bison and they had to euthanize it, which is similar to the recent incident. Oh. Yeah, so you were right. Like it, yeah, I think just media attention and people just with social media and they are like showing off that they're getting close to the animals where it's more prevalent is more obvious. It might've been happening, but maybe a little more under the radar. Maybe people were just doing like a quick, like, Hey, it's a bison. And then like jumping into their cars. But now we see it a lot more often on TikTok and Instagram. Yeah. So you think that, that social media is a big part of this, that people want a picture. There's a shocking photo in this article of two small children, pretty close to a bison as their father takes a photo. It's just like, what are you thinking? <laughs> Hello, child services. I know. What are you thinking? <laughs> yeah. But you you give some different reasons in this article for why this behavior, this stupid, stupid behavior is so prevalent. One of them was that a lot more people are getting are going to the national parks or are getting into nature because of the pandemic. Uh, explain that. Absolutely. So when we all were told to go into our homes and we lost a lot of our travel and entertainment, which were indoors, we all went outdoors, which was a great thing, but we just didn't really understand the rules of wildlife. So whether we just had not grown up around nature and didn't learn to kind of respect that they are wild. And so we just kind of bring our own perspectives and our own desires to these wild places. So we kind of think of them often as a theme park or I don't know, like an like a dog park or something of that sort. Sure. Or a petting zoo, you exactly. say. You use <laughs> that analogy. And that's because so many people who didn't used to take nature vacations are. You also posit that it possibly could be people's guilt about climate change, that they think that they're helping the animals and thus uh, helping mother nature, right? Absolutely. Yes. One of the experts I spoke with, and I can relate to this a little bit to a lot because I do try and do as much as I can for the animals. 
But people, we were so overwhelmed with climate change and things that are happening over here. Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, uh, there's your dog. <laughs> A very appropriate. I know. Uh, Rosie's like, I know, climate change. We got to stop it. Rosie, I think she was having a dream. <laughs> so, Aww. okay, so we're overwhelmed with climate change. We want to do something, but we're overwhelmed by what we can do. And so we think that maybe we can help one animal. And so in the cases of that, the bison, the man from visiting from Hawaii, who thought that the bison was struggling across the river and wanted to reunite it with its herd, and it ended up the herd would reject it. But we just want yeah. to do something. We had this sense of responsibility. We want to help whether it's an innocent creature, like whatever we can do to make the world just a tiny bit better. You make the point that there are certain parks like Assateague Island National Seashore in Virginia and Maryland, where there are wild horses. And I guess people just assume that if it's a horse, it's domesticated and can be interacted with. And so in certain parks, the problems with people interacting with wildlife are even greater. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Assateague has been a problem for a while because people identify with their childhood and horses and black beauty and movies and going to the racetrack if they did that thing. So they think of the horses as domesticated. And as you said before, like part of a petting zoo or a horse riding stable, but they're wild. And I remember last time I went a couple of years ago, as soon as you go over the bridge, you were flooded. You were just surrounded by these horses that if they could talk, they'd be like, hey, you got any Cheetos? Like, can I get some ice cream? Because people have fed them and they become aggressive. And they've had one horse recently where they had to move it to a sanctuary because it couldn't live out in the open anymore. It was just too much of a threat to visitors and also to the whole ecosystem of, of the horses. Right. So they have Pony Patrol volunteers there to try and, 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 and educate the visitors. What does the Pony Patrol do? Oh, they do so much. A lot is education. A lot of it is being out and about with the people and informing them about protocols and keep your distance, don't feed them. You know, they're just trying to keep the peace between the visitors and the ponies because, as I said, they can get aggressive, they can kick, they can bite. And so they go during peak seasons which would be summertime right now. And they just kind of are, it's mainly about education, education, protecting both the residents and the visitors. One of the other parts of your piece was not only do humans mess with these animals, but humans are getting fined and often the fines are pretty significant. Do you think these fines will tell us about the fines and do you think that they will actually start dissuading people from acting poorly in these parks? Oh, that's such a good question. You would think, but you know, we still speed and we still park in front of the fire hydrant. We just don't want to get <laughs> right. caught. That's the thing. I think what maybe could stop, I think, of course, the the man with the, the bison, I think he had a good heart. I, I didn't talk to him, but I think he truly wanted to help this little baby bison. There's another couple who put an elk in a car and drove it to the police station, yeah. again, because they wanted to help, as we would do if we saw maybe an injured cat or dog. Um, I think maybe what would have a bigger impact is seeing that these animals are euthanized and that these animals mm. lost their lives because we interfered. I'm sure people right. do not want to pay $1,000. They thought that was not part of their travel budget. To my knowledge, I don't think anyone has been incarcerated. Jail is on the table, but I think they realize a lot of people, they just made a mistake. 
There is one right. man who I really hope they catch. He's been harassing bears. I don't know if you saw this guy. He like no. jumps out of his car and like growls at them or barks at them, takes his shirt off and runs back in his car. So <laughs> I hope they, they throw the book at him. Yellowstone, they thought it might have been at Yellowstone, but Yellowstone just determined that it wasn't on in the park boundaries. Hmm. So I'm not sure who's going to go after him. But he's had several videos of him harassing bears. Well, yeah, one chased him, one turned around and chased him. But wow. as a lot of people were saying, you know, they're joking, oh, you know, he'll get his due with the bear. If the bear hurts him, they'll have to put down the bear. So, Right, right. And your dog does not approve of that. No, quite, quite he knows that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's always friend. so great speaking with you. Thank you so much, Andrea, oh, for appearing so on the Fromer Travel Show. So that's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. A quick program note. Because of the July 4th holiday, I will not be doing a new show for next weekend, but I encourage you to go back through our archives. We've had a lot of amazing guests on, a lot of great travel topics, and uh, to those who celebrate, which I guess is probably a lot of my listeners, have a wonderful 4th of July. As always, to those who are traveling, a hearty bon voyage. See you soon.